Hi, this is Jason, and welcome to Filmography Club. Today is our final entry in our series exploring the work of Jeremy Saulnier, and we're talking about Hold the Dark. Released in 2018, Hold the Dark is a thriller based upon the novel of the same name written by William Giraldi. It stars Jeffrey Wright, Alexander Skarsgård, James Badge Dale, Kylie Keogh, Tanto Cardinal, and Julian Black Antelope. My guest today is Dicey Wildman. She's a Nashville native and a writer-director and a real film enthusiast. In addition to making short feminist films with Daisy Dukes Films, she helps foster the arts community in Nashville, as exemplified by her co-founding the Defy Film Festival. That's an underground film fest highlighting oddball international cinema. She's a friend of the show, and it was great getting her back to talk about Hold the Dark. I love talking movies with her. Be aware, we do get into spoilers, so there's your warning. And here now is my conversation with Dicey Wildman, about 2018's Hold the Dark. All right, and I'm here with Dicey Wildman. Dicey, how are you? You know, all things considered, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, everybody starts the podcast off in relatively the same way. I know, you don't want to be a dick and be like, pretty good, because like, that's clearly not true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, none of us are doing that well, but relative to how it could be. You're doing well, huh? Yes. Good. Well, and happy to be here having yeah. fun conversations about not quarantine. Although not a fun conversation, maybe. Not a fun movie. Well, it'll be a fun conversation. I yes. love this movie. Well, I, I like it an awful lot. So lots to talk about today. We're talking about Hold the Dark, of course. It's going to be our final entry for this season's filmmaker, Jeremy Saulnier. Now, this one, he only directed this one. This is the first movie he's directed that he didn't actually write. Oh, I didn't realize that. I, I, I know that it's based on a book, but I just went ahead and assumed that he had handled that adaptation. He did not. That was handled by his childhood best friend and frequent co-collaborator, Macon Blair. Okay. The guy that gets stabbed in the head in this Okay, movie. so I, I literally, when you were saying that, I was thinking that that part feels like his other movies in such a very, very different way. And I just assumed that it was because of him. But now knowing that that actor had his hand in the whole thing, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's the first uh, screenplay that I know of that he's written. He also directed a movie that's on Netflix, I Don't Feel at Home yeah, in This World. Yeah, it's a great movie. Which it's really good. I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. So yeah, Hold the Dark. This is a dark, morose, some would say slow movie. There's it's not slow. It just, it's a slow burn. It, I would definitely I'll say agree that. With that. Yes. So uh, I guess we should give a little overview really quickly. We're not going to go through the plot beat for beat. Of course, the general, what's, what's the elevator pitch for this movie? Oh, from me? Sure. Or I can do it. A writer and wolf expert is called to a very small, remote Alaskan, if you can even call it a town, basically exact revenge on a wolf who is believed to have been taking children. And then it spirals out of control. <laughs> that sums okay. it up perfectly. That's that's the good pitch. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. The movie makes you think it's going to be about one thing. And then about, I don't know, 30 or so minutes into it, it swerves hard. Yeah. And it's not about that at all. Now we're in a totally different movie. Yeah, so the movie stars, it's got a great cast, as a matter of fact. This is probably the biggest names that Saulnier has ever scored. It stars Jeffrey Wright in our lead. In it. As always, I always enjoy his work. He plays uh, Russell Corr. 
a naturalist, wolf expert. Uh, it stars Alexander Skarsgård as the super scary Vernon Sloan. Scary. I mean, he he can. It's easier for him to be scary than it is for him to be something else. But damn, this one, I just like. I wouldn't even want to be in a room with him after having watched it. No, he almost feels like Anton Chigurh level villainous yes. or dangerous. I think Chigurh has a little bit more going on character wise than than Vernon Sloan does. But that's not a knock against Vernon Sloan. This is a super scary character. This guy hardly says a word, and he just scares the hell out of me. Also, James Badge Dale as the sheriff, I believe he is Donald Merriam. I really like that actor a lot. The mustache. I don't know him from anything else, but his, you know, you were talking about how the it, it takes a lot of swerves and becomes totally different movies. I think it does that a number of times. And one of them is this like kind of fun buddy movie with with he and um, Jeffrey Wright. And like, he, it's such a nice break from um, everything else. I think he's so excellent in it. Agreed. Uh, Macon Blair shows up for one scene exactly, and it wouldn't be a Jeremy Saulnier movie without Macon Blair, so it was nice to see him. He's always welcome. And uh, I don't know how you pronounce this this young lady's last uh, name. I think it's Riley Keogh, um, and she's okay. Elvis's granddaughter. She is Elvis's granddaughter. I was going to bring that up. I didn't know that uh, until after I'd watched the movie and I started digging around for this episode. Yeah. That kind of blew me away. But looking at her, I can act absolutely You can kind of see it, yeah. Riley Kiag, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your last name. Fine performance in this movie. Yeah, she's popped up in a couple of things in like the indie world in the last couple of years. And and I feel like it's always good. She's always always airs on the side of understated and um and yeah, and I, th- I think I think there's some talent there for sure. This is a hard one, and she stepped up. Yeah. So the word visceral gets used to describe pretty much every Jeremy Saulnier movie from Blue Ruin forward anyway. God, it's such a cliche to use that word, but damn, this is visceral. It truly is. I mean, I think if you made me sum up what he is as a director in in the broadest strokes, um, what he has brought to cinematic language in the last couple of years, it is this just really fearless it feels realistic approach to violence, which sounds very off-putting, but actually in every single incarnation of it, and I find it such a breath of fresh air. And even, I mean, obviously we're going to talk probably at length about this just like insane shootout scene in the middle. But what I love about it is the same thing I love about Green Room and the same thing I love about Blue Ruin is it feels like what it would be like if you were a human being experiencing this, if you were in this moment dealing with it and it's, it doesn't have the glitz and glamour of action. It's hard and it's difficult to watch and it's scary and it's sad all at once. And it's very matter of yeah. fact and it's never really accompanied by sudden stabs of music. No. It's just nothing to make it feel better for you. No. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much a hallmark of the guy's work, I believe. You know, though, I really do think that the portrayal of violence as violence, not as cinematic, but as violence is is kind of is so important actually. And, you know, there's obviously like, you know, the cliche answer to that would be like a Tarantino where like violence is sexy and violence is fun. And it's, you know, but I mean, it's obviously not limited to him. It's just, you know, thousands of movies that we all love do this and make it really sexy and fun and shooting guns looks great and blah, blah, blah. And like, I love that this is just like, if we're going to use, if we're going to show it, it's going to hurt to watch. It's going to be it's going to make you never want to be around a gun ever. It's going to make you never want to be in a scary 
Nazi basement or any of these places. Also part of what makes that disturbing, which is part of what makes the whole film disturbing and powerful and important is what you were talking about before. It's Skarsgård and it's his just unblinking matter of fact approach towards everything that he, that he accomplishes attempts and accomplishes in the film, um, which is exclusively violence. And, you know, it's just him, just him walking out of that, of that house after stabbing that rapist and his hands are covered in blood and he's barely blinked. And it's like, he's operating on some just like internal instinctual code of ethics, but it's not emotional at all. And then he picks up his cigarette again and his hands are covered in blood. And it's just, you know, he, his, you get the impression that his heart rate hasn't raised at all in the whole, in the whole experience. Yeah. And I noticed throughout the whole movie, he's totally devoid of emotion. Mm -hmm. He's, he's on a mission and he just single-mindedly goes for it. It feels like he's operating on instinct to me. Yes. One might say animal instinct. Would you perhaps say that? (laughs) Yes. Yes. And there's a lot to talk about there, but those initial scenes in, I don't know if they were Iraq or Afghanistan. I don't think that it's, it's never, ever laid never out explicitly. No. This movie, by the way, takes place in 2004. They don't ever put that up on the screen in a title card. But at one point, you see on television that the second battle of Fallujah is happening. And that was 2004. So it could have been either Afghanistan or mm-hmm. Iraq when we meet him. But when we see him, he's just efficiently mowing down insurgents, terrorists. We don't know the, the bad guys, the other mows them down very efficiently and coldly. And then the next scene we get is him killing the rapist. He stumbles across a rape being committed by a fellow troop and I never got the impression that he was trying to rescue that young lady. I got the impression that he just found easy prey. Oh, interesting. And he took his time. He took his time stalking that guy. It took about a whole minute for him to, he didn't just rush in there and, and, and kill that guy out of concern for that young lady. He stalked his prey very much like a wolf. I think that that's a really interesting interpretation of that scene. And one that I certainly cannot disagree with. I, you know, I like I just described it as like an animal instinct and a, and a and a code of ethics that I've I've in my interpretation of this really felt is like in line with like the internal politics of like packs and herd herd animals and you know they're absolute those absolutely exist and so so I also didn't interpret it as like he felt like he needed to save her but I didn't interpret it as easy prey either in my in my reading of it it was just this is a thing you don't do. I'm going to stop that. The end moving on. Like it's, it wasn't, it, it, she didn't matter at all. The act didn't matter. It was, it was a black and white read in his mind. I got the impression after watching it twice, after I saw that mm-hmm. scene the second time on my second viewing, I got the impression that, you know, like I said, it, it was just easy yeah. prey for him, but also that that scene was there to sh- there was some wiggle room in the audience's mind the first time you watch it. This guy might be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He might be. He's a killer, and he was very efficient and cold with how he, he did it. His job, but you know, yeah, he did his job in the first uh-huh. intro scene where he's on that fifty caliber d- destroying those guys in the pickup, and then when he kills the rapist, it's like, oh, the guy he murdered was clearly evil. Mm-hmm. So maybe this guy's a good guy. So it, it took a while in the movie logic to establish, no, 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 he's he's not a good guy. That. He killed that guy, but what that guy was up to is just incidental. Yeah. It felt like easy prey to Well, me. you know, that's another place that this film, I think, really manages a gray area so 
what feels effortlessly, but so efficiently, so beautifully, where there's a lot of characters that are terrifying and they are the bad guys. And yet that incredible conversation between the one guy who's friends with, with Skarsgård and I don't know the character's name or the actor's name, but he's phenomenal um, in the shootout and on the porch. And then the um, sheriff, the conversation that they have, you know, he says like, you let us down. Like you, you weren't here. You didn't come. You came a day later and you never came back. You know, he's, he is also a victim to this circumstance. And then obviously the film overall is proposing that this darkness, this, this darkness that is so imposing and this cold that is so imposing when it gets inside you, you are maybe changed forever. And so that idea of who are the good guys and the bad guys I really, it, it gets very muddied for sure. The best villains, you can see things from their point of view. The character you're talking about's name is Cheon, and the actor is uh, Julian Black Antelope, is his name. So incredible. He, yeah, and he was menacing. Yes. Good Lord. Yeah, and he had what sounded like legitimate gripes. Now, he's griping about stuff that occurred before the film ever yeah. started. So, as an audience, we're not really privy to whether he's really making good points or not. But to Miriam's credit, he he seemed to admit, yeah, you're right. Uh, maybe that was a negotiation tactic, yeah. though. I don't know. He was trying to stave off what wound up happening, which, again, we'll definitely get into that. That's sort of the centerpiece of the whole movie. I it suppose. truly is in every way. It also happens like at the dead center mark of the timeline. Okay, so I have a confession. Um, I watched this movie at the beginning of quarantine, unrelated to this podcast. But then when you were talking about, about doing these and you asked if I would do Hold the Dark, I completely conflated it. And I'm just going to chalk this all up to like quarantine brain. But uh-huh. I conflated it with, with Beyond the Black Rainbow which I had also seen around the same time as by the guy who did Mandy. And it's like super psychedelic and, and it's just like wild. And so that's what I thought I was saying I was going to watch again. And then if you go back in our text messages, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, I'll watch some like psychedelic shit again. And that was not this. But then also when I was talking about that movie, I thought that that movie was color out of space, which is a, another movie entirely. So I feel like, when one and they, I realized what movie we were actually watching, you know, far before yesterday when I rewatched it. But I was like, oh wow, this is not actually the movie that I would choose to watch twice in quarantine. It is a, it is really an emotional trek, but I really appreciated it upon the second viewing. Um, I mean, I loved it the first time. Well, no, that's not said. I really appreciated it the first time, and I would say I have a lot more affection for it the second time. It is the first time is just. I feel like as a viewer, you're just kind of trying to get your feet under you and figure out what kind of movie is this? You know, you alluded to how the twists and turns that it takes, but it's not plot twists and turns necessarily, although there are those, but it is just fully like the genre feels like it's shifting and who you're caring about and what to do. And, you know, I feel like once you've seen it once and you can kind of know a little bit of, of where your feet can land, then some of this more interesting subtle just masterwork it was really really evident again jeremy saulnier with the genre hopping uh watching this movie it felt like okay this is going to be a thriller oh no it's actually a murder mystery nope it's kind of a neo-noir no it's kind of a western it's just all over the place but it all feels like one cohesive work though it's not just a bunch of random scenes from different genres all chopped up and and smashed together it it flows very well yeah yeah i absolutely agree and there's really there's also some just excellent moments of horror in there 
And a little bit of gore, too. Not, Not a lot. Uh, Saulnier gets a bad rap, I believe, for people consider his movies to be gory. And they're, I take issue yeah. with that. There is absolutely some horrifying gore in his movies. Uh, in fact, this is the third of movie in a row of his where someone gets stabbed in the head. How bonkers is that? I mean, <laughs> you know what, what is you gotta it? You got to have that? a thing. That's your thing. That's great. <laughs> Sure. Well, that's a thing that Jeremy Saulnier actually saw in real life when he was younger, what? and and he's managed to work it into three of his movies. Now, um, he didn't write this one, so but still, he might have written that scene. It is a lot. Yeah. Well, or or his Macon. The thing is, he and Macon Blair have been buddies since they were kids, so Macon could have been right next to him whenever that real life incident happened. So I don't know. Oh, I. <laughs> that is terrifying and wonderful. Well, should we start from the beginning? I mean, I feel like we're hopping around, but the, this essence of the wolves is so necessary to this. Before we get into that, let me ask you a question right at the beginning. So I was going to save this question for the end, but let's. I, I want to know where your where your head is at. Is there a supernatural component to this movie? Great question. Love this question. I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Yeah, but it is not in a way. Anybody watching this movie because they're like, "Cool, there's a fun supernatural element to it," is going to be very disappointed. But yes, I, I, my interpretation of it, and I love that anytime there's a film that that you have to preface with, well, my interpretation because it's so ambiguous, and and I think that that's really handled beautifully. Um, it's not a lazy ambiguity. It is a, it's very purposeful. But yeah, I feel like the idea of the darkness as personified by wolves, I think I think right there at the end, it's, it's like, how do we talk about the darkness? How do we talk about the horrible things that human beings do to each other? And then as soon as it's it uses wolves as the mechanism to kind of embody that, I think it passes over into tipping a toe into supernatural. What do you think? I still yeah. don't know, but that's the only explanation that ties it all together mm-hmm. for me. The only reason I even hold back from just going, yes, I completely agree with you is because, well, like you said, there's nothing else in this movie. This feels so grounded and so realistic. His work does not have a history of incorporating supernatural elements into it. And if there is a supernatural element to this, it's very covert. So I guess in essence, what you're saying, you believe the the old Hamlet witch, right? I'm always one to believe an old Hamlet witch. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I do. Okay. My my notes that I took last night for this podcast basically look like a psychotic E.E. E. Cummings poem, but they are <laughs> me trying to work through this. And it comes down to sure. the darkness is the, once the darkness gets inside you, then the animal instinct, this like some like this loss of humanity is what occurs there. And that's where you're seeing Riley Keogh at the beginning and Skarsgård the whole time is like, is they are, they're operating on this just totally other level. You know, all the conversations between Jeffrey Wright and Riley are so weird. If you were him in those conversations, I mean, you would just, I don't know if I could stay in that house. I mean, she's just so detached from reality, but in this way, that's just like, is this just what it's like to be living out here in this world where, you know, they say at one point that it gets, the sun comes up around 10 and it goes down around three. That is really surreal. And that notion of what is stripped from you without the light, let's say, I think right. is really, really fascinating. And so as soon as you interpret her her behavior as more lupine, more, more animal, then it all actually starts to make a lot of sense. You know, like her interaction after she's taking the shower and he wakes up in the middle of the night and she's taking a bath and then she comes to him and enacts 
what in the movie feels like just very confusing behavior, but in, in an animal context is like a very realistic expression of being submissive in order to like maintain harmony in, in a pack. It's like her behavior starts to make sense as soon as it's put through this other lens. And once you've seen the movie all the way through, you start to understand earlier scenes. Yeah. Like when he hears her and then walks up, approaches and notices her in the bathtub and she's scrubbing herself and she's muttering to herself. I was totally baffled by that the first time I watched the movie. I just didn't get it. The second time, I, of course, had seen the, the scene with the two of them, the two Sloans, in the hot spring together. And that was the same dialogue. She was muttering the same dialogue to herself that she and um, the male Sloan. What's what that character's name, name again? Know. Oh, goodness. Let me find it. I've got it right here in front of me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the same dialogue. She's trying to relive that yes. moment. And I, I did not put that together. It just seemed like the mutterings of an insane woman the first time I saw it. Yeah, it's very easy to write her off as an insane woman. And I wouldn't say that the movie is asking you to do anything else, you know, um, at the risk of foiling everything, which like, we've already done in many ways. You know, she is, you know, she's culpable. And, but also her behavior there in this, in this original crime for which Jeffrey Wright is here to investigate and, and enact revenge. He talks about how the murder of, of humans by wolves is very rare, but the act of savaging and, and killing, killing the youth in a wolf pack in times of, of struggle is, is entirely normal. And then we see that again later in the movie. And so it's, Again, back to this idea of when you're when when you're reduced with such scarcity, all of a sudden these things that would have been unthinkable become absolutely necessary. Maybe you know she says you left he left me here. He, I don't have a single memory without him in it, and he left me here with a sick child. Mm -hmm. You know we might all lose our minds a little. Let me ask you this because this was news to me. Are you aware that this couple is, are siblings? Okay, so Eric told me this. Can we talk about this? He said, yeah. and I guess um, he had read some about the movie after we watched it the first time, I guess like about six months ago. But I guess in in the book, they, they turn out to be siblings. But I wasn't sure if that was, if it right. was supposed to be true in this as well. I think okay. it was. There were a couple of things point to it. The scene where she says that she doesn't remember meeting him, like she's always, yeah. she doesn't have a memory that he's not in. Then when they go through the family picture or the pictures and she they come across a Polaroid of the two of them as toddlers. Mm -hmm. And it's clearly a familial type situation yeah. in that picture. Um, and then of course, just reading up on it and it blew my mind. I'd watched the movie all the way through twice. This is how thick I can be. And I did not put that together. And then of course I found out later, Oh, it's, it's in the novel. It's overt yeah. in the novel. And it's really kind of right there. And I watched an interview with uh, Skarsgård, uh, Wright, and Saulnier right before you and I got on this Zoom call. And Jeremy Saulnier said that they filmed a lot of stuff that he wound up cutting out oh. because it's stuff that makes overt things that are sort of hinted yeah. at. But he said they took great care to leave in just enough for the audience to put it together for themselves. That. We're not going to hand you this. But if you go back and watch the movie and pay attention, the answers are all there. And the more that you and I talk about this, the more I think that you might be right about the supernatural component, because that's the only way the ending makes any yeah. sense. Unless these, unless Vern and, um, Medora, oh my God, I can't remember her name. Like that? That's it. You got it. 
they're, they're, it only makes sense. Their behavior only makes sense if they're either both insane or if they are wolves, sort of. And, you know, the, the film goes out of its way to put wolf masks on both of them really, really early on. It's like, I think, I think that that's what we're, what we're supposed to believe. And, and truly, I, I love that interpretation. I think it's so fantastic. And the idea that in that context, then the only human that can understand them is this human that's sort of living half in that world of wolves and half in the world of, of, of humans. And then he has to, the, the struggle is for him to be able to hold off the dark and and stay and hold on to his humanity as, you know, I think is represented at the end by his relationship with his daughter. I think that that's probably what's, what's happening. And by the way, feel free to go into spoilers at the beginning of this. I'll, I will have, it's too late. Uh, yeah. I always tell people, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting into spoilers. I mean, yeah, I don't know why anyone would listen right. to this yeah, without having watched the movie. So yeah, the movie ends and you notice when, um, Vernon is going on his kill spree, I suppose, at the end. Well, he's making really good shots with a bow and arrow while wearing a very cumbersome mask that has to limit his visibility. <laughs> that stretches my, uh, you know, the, the plausibility a little bit, but I'll forgive it. But he's about to strangle his sister slash lover slash wife, whatever. He's about to kill her. He immediately just walks up to her and wraps his hands around her neck and starts squeezing her. But then when she pulls the mask off, he mm-hmm. stops and kisses her. And it's a totally different thing. It's like the masks make them more wolf-like. And I, I heard someone talking about this movie compare this to Batman. Hear me out. <laughs> it's widely considered amongst comic book nerds that Batman is the real guy. The guy with the cowl and the mask on. That's the real guy. The mask is Bruce uh-huh, Wayne. Okay, that feels that, that's cool. And this is similar to that. Uh, when they wear the masks, they kind of become more what they truly are, which, according to the Hamlet Witch, is they're both uh, wolf demons yeah. of some sort. Oh, and another thing about them being siblings, someone says that they had the same eyes and hair. Oh, they really do, don't they? Yeah. I think they, they lay it on a little thick, and I totally missed it, but I think <laughs> I it's love there. It. Well, the only thing that yeah. for me feels like it's pushing back at the idea of them being wolves and being being possessed by, by wolf demons, um, which is a sentence that I'm in love with, yeah. is Jeffrey Wright's character. He says that revenge, there's no place for revenge in, in the natural order. And so, you know, they have this new sort of society or, or society is honestly unfair they have this new ethical i don't know i don't know it just feels like they're like living by their this totally unique and different their own order. order and yet it's not fully wolf it's not fully lupine because because the so much of it is based on revenge and so you know actually the part of the the idea of killing the child in a time of scarcity is actually much more natural than the notion of revenge and the notion of this deep resentment that they all have. But it maybe speaks to why he doesn't kill her at the end in the hot springs is that's not part of the natural order. Yeah, it doesn't fit in. And then at the end, of course, they take their son's body in their little makeshift coffin and with wolves just wander out into the wilderness at the end. They're wolves. Or they're absolutely out of their fucking minds. <laughs> or maybe a little. It's, it's one of those two things. It's one of those two yeah. things. But 
So, you know, so what just, was what is there? What what is the other option for them? I mean, it's just horrible there. It's horrible there. You know, she says she can only imagine warmth, and and the other guy said she can't even wrap her mind around a beach. Yes. And the yeah. other guy's like San Diego, never heard of it. And like he has, but it's just like that is not even on our planet. Can you imagine feeling of desperation? Anchorage is a big bustling metropolis to oh, these yeah. people. And She's like, that's not Alaska. Yeah. And they totally distrust the the law enforcement from the nearest town. Yeah. yeah. These are, they're country folk. Yeah. They're certainly detached enough from what we know that they've had to create truly their own way of doing things. And some of them look like a world that I'm not really in a hurry to live in at all. Can we unpack what the actual plan was with her contacting Jeffrey Wright's character? As I understand it, here's what I've kind of put together. She did not want him to actually find and well, she wanted him to find and kill a wolf so that by the time Vernon got back, she would have something to show him as she put it to to core Russell. She murdered her own son in order to get her counterpart, Vern, back. Correct. That was the whole point was to bring him home. I'm not positive if it was that because he came home because of the because of the other. He was shot. I don't think that's it. I think it's just and I'm not sure, but I I think she she murders her son because it's too much responsibility to have that to to be raising that child, a sick child. And we don't know what that sickness is. Maybe that's elaborated more in in the book, but it's about resources there, I think. And it's coincidental that he's coming back. I think. Yeah, maybe so. It's all a little a little opaque, which I'm fine yeah. with. It's it gives me something to talk about on my yeah. podcast. Well, Cor says the only explanation that I can think of, which is I think she wanted someone to tell her story. Which ties directly into the ending yeah. when he says, I'll tell you about it to his daughter. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of significance to that last scene, I believe, with his daughter. That's really the reason why he went to Alaska to begin with. Yeah. It was just an excuse. The wolf thing was just an excuse to get into Alaska and then maybe hopefully I can reconnect with my estranged daughter while I'm while I'm up there. Which is so which, sweet and such a lovely counterpart to this other familial relationship, which is um, mm-hmm. more dysfunctional. So this movie's themes are, I suppose, duality mm-hmm. of man and our more uh, more animalistic side. There's a uh, father-son or, or father-child dynamics uh, seem to be a, a big theme in this movie, too. Of course, with Russell and his daughter, and of course, with the murdering of these children. Which, you know, I never got the impression that uh, were those other child deaths legit? Were they really wolves killing these children? You know, it certainly is the is the impression of the the group, the the little Hamlet, as you say, like, mm-hmm. you know, to the degree that they have, you know, men with guns watching the kids as they go to school. Like it is definitely believed internally that that is the case. Her murdering of her own son really does not feel like something that that is malicious and therefore i can't imagine that being something that's that's being that she's doing to other children or otherwise i do feel like the the first two kids are actual wolves but then that calls into question cuz core is like this is very unusual behavior this would almost never ever happen i'm starting to think that those initial child deaths were in fact the work of just legit wolves yeah. the reason i say that is because once vernon gets back and he meets up with chion chion's kid was killed too oh yeah that's that's how the sheriff lets him down it seems like his family wouldn't do that to chion they, these guys are tight and the movie makes it a point to show when when vernon gets back from overseas he and chion we, we get a nice long drive with the two of them not really saying anything. 
They're not talking. And a lot of people would look at that and think, why in the world are we watching just, we're just going to set a camera up and drive for 10 fucking minutes with no dialogue and nothing said. But I think we needed that because it sort of established that these guys go way back. These dudes are bros from way back. They're willing to do whatever it is to help each other out, whatever it takes. That comfortable silence that those guys shared with immediately Chion, the first thing he does, he doesn't hug his old friend. He hands him a weapon of vengeance. He hands him a knife. Because he already knows what's in his head. He already knows what the plan is because they're on the same page immediately. And they go about it with cruel efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, I guess we should probably talk about the midway point of this it's movie. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And it's really anchored by this friend character that we're talking about. He's so excellent. He's so real. He's so straightforward. And part of that, his determination is what makes it so scary. It really feels like the reality of, of living through a just horrible, horrible shootout. I've heard this scene compared to the famous shootout from Heat, which I don't know. This was a little more, again, I'm going to say visceral. Uh, I know it's cliche when we're talking about Jeremy Saunier, but whatever. It's certainly gorier because one of the first officers that gets hit, it's my God, what happens to his face is just really out of the blue and horrifying. And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't make his camera linger on, on any kind of fetishization of violence or of violence or gore, but he's just very Mm -hmm. honest about it. And so, you know, the camera doesn't go in further to look at that just eviscerated jaw, but like we see it, we see it because he takes a second before he falls face down into the snow. And then it's followed by, I don't know, I meant to time it and I forgot, but you know, a 15 minutes of just, just shooting and hiding and shooting and hiding and these green, just kids that don't know what they're doing. And that one kid who's so scared, it is just, it is so hard to watch. Arnie. Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh man, it was, it was tough. That was one of the better directed action set pieces I've seen in a long time. It did a wonderful job of establishing geography without without making you realize that they're establishing geography. Mm -hmm. The scene in question, of course, is when Chion opens up a door on a second floor overlooking all these small town cops with an M60 and just unleashes hell on these guys. And it's uh, very tough to watch. It reminded me somewhat of there was an episode in the much maligned second season of True Detective. There was a gunfight during the second season of True Detective, which I would put up there as being one of the greatest. And it reminded me a bit of that. That's so funny that you bring that up because I didn't make it through all the way through the second season. I made it to episode three and then was like, okay, you guys don't understand what I like about this. But it did make me think of that incredible episode in season one of True Detective where with the like amazing oneer and even though this is not that there's some something about the attention to detail was so meticulous and perfect and it felt like the the intention was to put you in this reality what would it feel like if you were here and I would say both of those scenes are just I mean there's cinematic masterpieces. And the choice to use a belt-fed weapon like the M60 was very, I I think that that was very much on purpose. It wasn't just a prop that they had lying around. They needed to have a weapon that could put out a lot of lead unrelentingly. It was just raining. It was almost D-Day style. It just kept coming. Those are belt-fed weapons. And those belts, I don't know how many rounds they hold, but it just just kept coming. It just did not let up. And it put us right there with those 
scared kids. Oh, absolutely. I am like hiding behind that rock with that kid and just hoping to make it another day. It is so scary. And, you, you know, he he taunts us and the sheriff at the beginning by saying, talking about the phone call that his wife is going to get. And that is such a, you know, a, a reality of families who are in this, who, who have dangerous jobs of any kind, that idea. But then it's also partly his own, his own reality. Cause you know, they talk about the fact that this, this community is not going to last another season. Like it's not going to, it's going to be gone. And so it's everyone, it seems to be operating in this, in this just like, well, if I'm going to go, I might as well go out hard kind of way. And then everyone from that's not from there is like, whoa, what are you doing? Please stop. We can't live like this. Um, but they lose. I mean, that's not this small community gets their way in such a, such a, I don't know. I don't know. So, such a dark conclusion. And it's, it's disturbing to see evil depicted on screen like that with, with that guy just murdering all of those police officers. But what's more disturbing is to know that he did it out of friendship. He was buying his buddy yeah. time. He killed all those police officers out of friendship, out of loyalty to his buddy, knowing that he wasn't going to survive that day or probably guessing that he wouldn't survive that day. There's no way he thought he was going to. I mean, I, at the end, I do feel like that that's a surprise to him. And it's a surprise to you, too, as, as an audience member, when he says boo and then just I mean, it's gone, but yeah, but no, I do not believe that he thought that, that he could survive that. There's no way um, that just that level of doomsday, there's only one way out of that. But also, you know, the idea of it being for friendship, like it feels like we're back to this like animal code of ethics of like, you're in my pack. Okay. What do you need? Right. I'm here. What do you need? Right. And that's why I love that scene so much with the two of them just driving, barely saying a word to each other. It totally set up that these guys are the kind of guys that would do this for yeah. one another. Yeah. For better or for worse. I mean, there is something admirable there. Obviously, I'm not advocating any of the behavior in this film, but you know, if I'm being totally honest, there's something so truly special and beautiful about depictions of male friendship. And while this one obviously also contains a lot of the like toxic and horrible elements of masculinity when we talk about it in these concentrated bites but also gosh gotta love people just putting themselves out there for their friends <laughs> that's great and it continues the jeremy saunier tradition even though he didn't write this screenplay of the villains being three-dimensional mm -hmm. characters even in green room the villains are the go-to bad guys that you don't feel bad about mercilessly mowing down right like right underneath zombies it's nazis yeah. neo-nazis whatever. And yet that movie went to pains to present those guys as being humans who also get scared, yeah. who also fuck up and make mistakes and are somewhat, I don't, I'm scared to say sympathetic. I'm not sympathizing with Nazis here. Yeah. Don't, don't put any gray area rapist. Yeah. <laughs> but they do feel like fleshed out humans. Yeah. Yeah. It's more complicated than just Nazi. I do feel like, you know, while it's so nuanced and and subtle and like you're saying, you know, there's just literally only enough to develop an idea of what you think the movie's about, let alone, you know, not even venturing an idea of what might actually be the intention. There's also, it is pretty simple. It is, you know, we're looking for people, we're chasing people, we're, we're but really it's, I think it's just core staying true to his core, to his human essence that allows him to not be sucked into this, to this darkness, which, you know, from, if we're going to extrapolate further, and I've talked about this a little bit, but I, when people are, are 
forced into scarcity. There's no limit to the to the degree of desperation that that can elicit and what people will do in that. And, you know, I think in some degree, this is really a condemnation of wealth disparity. And I'm tempted to say that this movie is about, you know, it, it, it's, it sort of points the finger at small town folks mm. in a way. It's like, yeah, look at these guys, look at these small town people and how fucked up they are. And it takes big city people from a town that may have a couple of thousand people in it, I guess. Like that's a big city to them to establish law and order here or right the wrongs or bring people in from the mainland. Yeah, that's really true. That is a pretty tricky, slippery slope right there to start to say, you know, yeah, this small town literally has like a witch in it and these nutty folks wearing masks and killing their kids and They've developed their own bizarro law and order. I I still don't understand what he had to gain from taking his son's body, though, and why it was so important he had to kill two cops in a corner Mm -hmm. to do it. I, I just don't get it. I mean, I suppose they have their own burial rituals that they had to, to do, which I assume went on during the closing credits. Right. But yeah, so this movie, the bad guys win. Oh, 100, 100%. But also, Core holds the dark. He holds it at bay. True. When I say that the bad guys win, I just mean in a very superficial way. The, the, the movie was about Core and his arc, and, and he got an arc, and that's all we need. That's why he was the last scene in the movie. Much like uh, Shawshank Redemption, people think it's a movie about Andy Dufresne. It's not at all. It's about Red. Yeah. It's it's about Red learning to hope again. That's that's all that matters. It's that last sentence. You know, I hope I see my friend again. I hope I can shake his hand on a beach. I hope. Yeah, yeah, I love that. It's so true. So in a superficial way, the bad guys do in fact win this one, but it's up in the air. If there is no supernatural component to this, and they were just going off into the wilderness with these wolves with their son's corpse, they will die. Yeah. They're going to die from exposure. So but, maybe they don't get away you know, with it. There's also, it's impossible really to, to know the intention of these two characters. They are so bizarre, but we've literally seen her play at the notion of being strangled multiple times. And he, you were yeah. just saying, I mean, he cuts into his arm, not the way you would when you need some blood, but the way you would if you were going to kill yourself. They are playing at death the whole time. And what do they have to live for? It's, and that, I mean, that's a, that's a rude thing to say, but also like it, the destitution is so real and they're just weird killing machines. And, you know, there is something about even in the non-supernatural version where they are going out into the woods and that is how they they are going to die in the same place as their son. That also feels very possible. Uh, I'm looking forward to what these guys do next. Yeah, do you know anything? I don't. I looked it up right before we started so that we could kind of cap off this thing with something to look forward to. And I, I see nothing on the horizon for, um, at least for Jeremy Saulnier. Uh, make him Blair? Let's see. I'm sure he's got stuff going on because he's he's a pretty busy actor now. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. This... <sighs> I don't like this at all, but he's rebooting the Toxic Avenger. Oh, I'm totally cool with that. <laughs> Make him Blair. Well, I don't give a shit about the Toxic Avenger, which is why I'm saying that. I don't look at it like it's sacrilege or something. I just, I don't, I don't give a shit. But with Make him Blair on board, I'm going to take a look at it, of course. But he's uh, both writing and directing it. Um, I'm super interested in that. And we sort of, I, I said this at the beginning, but it's worth restating. His scene in the middle of this movie is absolutely one of my favorites. It is so well acted. 
for a movie that is so laconic. I mean, all of the the men and women in this movie, across the board, they are people of few words. And then he comes in as just like a little chatterbox the whole time. And I really appreciate just the yeah. little repose there. And then it is so wild and so scary and so violent and so perfect. And his acting in that scene, looking at Vern and trying to get out of the inevitable is so excellent. I just, from every perspective, but really from a structural perspective, it is so necessary and it is one of my absolute favorites. I'd like to take a second out of this because I know this is Jeremy Saunier's movie, but Macon Blair as not just a writer and director, he's, he's really good at that stuff too, but just as a as an actor, that guy needs to be getting more roles. He needs to be in all the Coen Brothers oh movies. Gosh, yes. He's I, I, I love watching the guy work. He's 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 wonderful. Yeah, he's a real everyman, and yet there's something so much more there. And a hell of a talented uh, writer and, and director. Yeah, having seen uh, what was it? I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Yeah, yeah writer and With director Elijah Wood mm-hmm. and oh, what is her name? I love her so much. Melanie Linsky. Yes, I love her. He showed up as a bit character in that movie too. He was the, the the guy at the bar. I think he was credited. Yeah, it says here bar dude. <laughs> he was the guy that he spoiled the novel that she was reading. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. It's like such a dick. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at his filmography right here. And man, that guy's been in a lot of stuff lately, uh, stuff I haven't seen yet. Uh, he's got, he was in something this year called I Care A Lot. Oh, I've never heard of that. Yeah, a thriller written by Jay Blakeson, who I'm not sure, I don't never heard that name, but it stars Roseman Pike, Peter Dinklage, Elsa Gonzalez. He was in The Hunt that, I don't know if it was controversial or if that was just marketing saying that it was controversial. I, I don't but, know anything about it. I've, I've seen some advertisements for it, but yeah, it was released in uh, theaters like right before the pandemic hit. Uh, so, I mean, it, it flopped pretty hard, but it's not really the movie's fault for that. I suppose it only made like 15 mil. Yeah. It turned up, turned like less than a million dollars profit. So it was profitable, but yeah, it's sort of a, a it's playing off of, class stuff. Oh, they're going to hunt deplorables, as they call it. So it's like rich liberals hunting down for sport red state. You know what? That does sound pretty controversial now that you mention it. (laughs) And I remember seeing trailers for it. I haven't seen it at all, but the trailers were all just kind of trading on, they don't want you to see this movie. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. I don't know. You know what, though? Making Blair's in it, I'll give it a watch. Let's watch it for him. Yeah. I think that's pretty much everything that was on my list in my notes here. What about yeah, you? Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm sure there's so many veins that we didn't even plumb, but but I think I think we did it. Dicey, it's been great having you on. You are always welcome, by the way. If you ever think of a favorite movie of yours. Oh my gosh. We'll do another I'm one. definitely going to take you up on that. Now I just have to pick one. <laughs> That's a hard question. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was a, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. I love I love coming on. This is great. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Dicey. Take care. And there we have it. That's it for this episode. And that closes the book on our series on Jeremy Saunier. I want to thank my guest, Dicey Wildman. I look forward to our next conversation. I'd also like to thank Will Fox, Ross Warner, and Michael Leeds. 
Filmography Club is produced right here in pestilence-ridden Nashville, Tennessee, by the always hardworking folks that we own this town. I'm Jason Cavanis. This is Filmography Club. Thanks for listening.